morning is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. If you have a Bible, please follow along in your Bible. And if not, it'll be up on the screens for you to see and follow along with. From Philippians. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so, somehow, to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet as to, t as to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Lord God, may we ever strive to do that. May we forget what is behind us, that we might stretch forward, reaching for the prize that is Christ, and that is eternal life, and that is glory in your gospel, God. Lord, I ask that you just open our hearts for this word this morning as our elder Marin comes before us with your word. Anoint him, Lord, and bless him. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you, Missy. <clears throat> All right. Well, good morning, and it's such an honor and a pleasure to be here with um, sort of a continuation of the, the message I preached of several weeks ago on shame, um, kind of following in on some, with some notes from the same author in the same book. And so this message is on doubt. You know what I need? The clicker. The, uh, you can do the screens. All right. <clears throat> So Paul says, I want to know Christ. That's his pronouncement at the beginning of this passage. Thank you. Isn't that kind of a presumptuous and audacious claim? Who does Paul think he is? Isn't it kind of like saying, I want to know the president, or I want to know Queen Elizabeth? Just saying that is probably not going to make it happen. It's not going to get you anywhere near the president or the queen. If I do something really noteworthy, and if I take advantage of every opportunity to place myself where our paths might cross, I might get a handshake from the president. I might get to see the queen. But I'm probably not going to get to know them. And that's really not for me to decide, is it? For people in a notable position like that, you have to wait for an invitation. And then you've got to present yourself in accordance with the rules that are laid out in that invitation. And it's going to be a very one-sided initiative 
This is a copy of the actual invitation to Martin Luther King to come have lunch with President Kennedy. It was very official. So who does Paul think he is? I want to know Christ. Actually, my goal here is not to demean Paul in any way. If you think about it, Paul, probably in his lifetime on earth, knew Christ better than anyone, and probably better than anyone ever has since. Paul, upon encountering Christ on that Damascus Road experience, he persevered to follow him. He joined in Christ's sufferings, and ultimately I am sure he will and attain the resurrection of the dead, which he hopes for, and and it's mentioned in this verse. My goal really is just to introduce this concept of there's there's a place for doubt, even in Paul's life. And yet if we, as we go in and we look closer at the rest of this passage, we'll see that Paul understood or had behaviors and habits that inoculated him from the effects of doubt. There's lots of reasons why Paul could have doubted his call, but he, he didn't. And we'll take a closer look at those after we examine and explore the nature of doubt and how uh, it really does work its way into our lives. Hypothetical situation. I'm sure none of you have never experienced this. You've just taken a test, and you don't feel very confident about the results. There might be a lot of reasons why. Maybe the material was just too complex for you. Maybe it was a surprise test and you didn't have time to prepare. Or maybe you just didn't study last night. There's different causes, but the same result. You could go to your teacher and say, option number one, I was absent when this material was first covered, and it's, I'm having such a hard time just keeping up with the new material. That's why I didn't do good on the test. Or option number two is, my mother is sick, and I'm taking care of the rest of the family, and I just can't find a quiet place or the time to, to study and concentrate. Or option three, you might say, well, I didn't feel like studying last night. You know, which one's apt to maybe get you a little bit of compassion and mercy from the teacher? Certainly not option number three. And the same kind of thing happens in the scriptures. Doubt pops up in many different contexts. Sometimes it's met with God's wrath or Jesus' irritation. Sometimes it's greeted with mercy and grace. And you have to look very closely at the context. Often, when we study the scriptures, uh, we look at the original Greek words, words, and that's helpful for distinguishing the context. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I do have this awesome, boy, this thing is all over the place, keyword study Bible. If I only had one resource that I could use, to study, this, this would be it. The battery never goes dead. I've dropped it and the screen never cracks. It's an awesome book and it really, it incorporates in, in the, a complete Bible all the Strong's numbers. And so you can look up the original um, 
Greek or Hebrew of any word, pretty much every word, the, all the major ones, and then go and look at the, uh, you know, find out what it really meant and the different kind of nuances of that word. And in this case, it doesn't help at all. Um, the, the, the different words that are translated as doubt in, in, in the scriptures um, kind of occur randomly, scattered about in all the different instances. I can show you what some of them are. There's diacrino, which means to waver between two ideas. It's sometimes used to mean to judge between two things. There's apistos, which means unbelieving. And there's metaorizomai, which means to worry about or to be anxious. And like I said, there, any one of these words is used in, the, in, in all the different contexts that we find uh, doubt brought up. And you can see that they could almost be used interchangeably, just like they would be in English. You could say, I doubt I did well on the test, which means pretty much the same thing as I don't believe I did well on the test which means pretty much the same thing as I'm worried that I did not do too well on that test. Right? So, and these different phrases and different things which means doubt is what we also find in the scriptures. So how do we deal with, how do we discover why there's so many different reactions to doubt within the scriptures from God and from Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, let's take a look at what doubt is. I want to work first from something we know, and I only want to focus on what doubt means in the context of our faith. I'm not going to go into a deep etymological study of the history of the word of doubt in the English language, although incidentally, my ancestors brought it into the Northern Isles in the Norman invasion of the 11th century. You're very welcome, and we got it from uh, the Latin and in 10 centuries, the word doubt really hasn't changed very much. It's always a, a, um, a dual, a, a, what do we call it, Con compound word, which kind of means two ideas, two thoughts, two minds. It's been the way it's been for a thousand years. But what I'm really interested in is not um, whether you have doubts about what the weather is going to be today or doubts about how Tom Brady's ground game is going to be or doubts about whether Aunt Millie is going to show up for Thanksgiving. What we're concerned about in the rest of this message is the kind of doubts that would cause us to question our salvation, to doubt that we can have victory over besetting sin to doubt that God exists or that he's active in our lives. These are the kind of doubts that we're focusing on and interested in. So we want to start with something that we know. We'll start with the definition, I should have used a bigger font here, of faith, which is essentially the opposite of doubt. And we know from Hebrews 11.1 1, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So if we take that known definition and invert it a little bit, we, know, we get this that doubt is uncertainty about things hoped for. Are you going to heaven? I don't know. And disbelief in things unseen. And I kind of like this definition as I kind of hunted around for a way to define doubt because what, what this does 
is it kind of puts a spotlight on the arrogance and pride that is often the source of our doubts. As soon as I put this together like this, I could almost hear someone say, I can't see it, so I don't believe it. As though man's perceptual abilities are the ultimate basis for determining truth. Our eyes are so easily fooled. My favorite rock band as a younger man was the Moody Blues. I had all their albums. And there's a lyric that I've remembered, you know, to this day. It, it, things trigger it frequently. And it's from their song called Late Lament. And it captures the, this irony perfectly. It says, Cold-hearted orb that rules the night removes the colors from our sight. Red is gray and yellow white, but we decide which is right and which is an illusion. We can't even trust our eyes. And yet so many people would rather walk by sight than by faith. That's the arrogance of much of what leads to doubt in our lives. So another way of putting this is, is the way that... Um, Egypt is referred to in Isaiah 36, 6 he's, as a splintered reed of a staff. We lean on things which cannot be trusted. So to enemy number one, the number one cause of doubt is ignorance of the promises and truths contained in God's word. That's the first and foremost cause of doubt. Which psalm is it says, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. We lean on our own understanding at the detriment of our confidence, our faith, our ability to withstand trials. And that's the first thing you have to remember. If that's the first cause of doubt, then how do we deal with our doubts? The, again, drawing on the book by William Reichert, If Only I Could Believe, this is, he has a, a different sections, different chapters. The last one I covered was, built, uh, based, was uh, the causes of shame. Then he has a whole chapter on doubt. And he uh, references two ways that we can deal with doubt. One is to whip the donkey. I like to look for pictures to illustrate concepts. If you look for this, all you get are really sad pictures, mostly on ASPC sites of real instances of people abusing animals. And so I didn't pick any of those. But um, he tells the story, or he illustrates the, the problem like this. He says, a farmer ties an enormous load of wood on the back of a donkey and then proceeds to whip it to move it along. And no matter how hard he hits that donkey, it gets slower and slower, and it stumbles, and it's having a hard time, but he just keeps whipping the donkey until it finally sinks to its knees, falls on its side, and he just keeps saying, get up, get up and go, and it won't. 
it cannot, it collapses under the burden uh, which is unwieldy. And that's how Christians often treat their faith in the face of doubts. They say, believe, just keep believing. Don't doubt, just keep believing. Sometimes it happens from the pulpits. Fake it until you make it. You haven't heard that too recently, have you? That, that, that's not an appropriate way to deal with our doubts. Reichert brings up what he feels is a better illustration or a better way to deal with doubts um, mentioned by another Scandinavian theologian whose name I can't pronounce, Helmut Thilicke, or Thilicke, who says doubt is like an envelope. <clears throat> and it's got a message inside it. But the only way to get to the message is to open the envelope. So that doubts are not something to be feared or ashamed of. Doubts can be the beginning of an adventure. The first step in a search to know God more intimately. And an invitation to be known more by him. He can handle your questions. He can handle your doubts. So what you want to do is, is learn to bring them to him in all honesty and humility. Which is enemy number two. Pretense and pride. Pretending that everything's fine or just in pride holding fast to your preconceived notions and your stereotypes and cliches and not honestly addressing real questions. Oz Guinness, another theologian, writer, and psychologist, classifies the, the causes of doubt in, in seven areas. Just very quickly, they are not remembering, having a wrong image of God and who he is and how he works, a lack of knowledge, which is almost the same thing as number two, a lack of commitment, which is like being married but refusing to wear a wedding ring, a lack of nourishment, which is not engaging in fellowship and communion and feeding that relationship, stress and fatigue, and trauma. Wright Kirk takes those same seven and classifies them in three areas. He calls them doubts of the will, doubts of the mind, and doubts of the heart. Doubts of the will, he equates to something like an unsigned contract. All the work's been done, the details have been spelled out, but if you refuse to sign it, it's void, it's null and void. You can't call on it for any reason. And God almost never pardons or is, deals gently with that type of doubt. It's a half-hearted seeking after God, a half-hearted faith, stubbornness, clinging to your own opinion and wills. Doubts of the mind um, are often treated severely, but in some cases we see where God entreats us to engage with him intellectually. He says in Jeremiah 29, 12, ask of me. He says in other places, let us reason together. So we are encouraged to bring our intellectual approach to God and to consider his promises, but not to stand on a continual argument 
with him. As God says to Job in chapter 38, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? At a certain point in time, you have to surrender to the sovereignty and the omniscience of God and give up your proud arguments. Amen. And finally, there are doubts of the heart, which are rarely dealt with harshly, always compassionately. And we'll get into some examples of that in a minute. We're going to look at a whole bunch of passages in Scripture. I don't have them spelled out. I'm just going to quickly remind you of, of some um, stories in the Bible that you might be familiar with. If not, I'll be happy to give you some of the references later. They don't all mention the word doubt. Some of them are just clearly from the experience and the response of the individuals involved show that they were in a, in a quandary that there was something they didn't understand and they were questioning God on. So we're going to look at some right away. The first one, Genesis 15, where Abraham, this is a great quote, this is a, a, a passage that's quoted in the New Testament that says that Abraham believed the Lord and he credited him, to him as righteousness. Now what he believed the Lord about was that he would make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abraham believed that. He said, yeah, I, I could see that happening. I could play a part in that. And he was kind of looking forward to it. In the next sentence, God says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. And that promise Abraham had trouble with. He said, uh, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So in, in, in the space of three verses, we're told that Abraham's righteousness was credited to him because of his faith. And one verse later, he's questioning God. How can I know that I'm going to take possession of all this land? Because Abraham could see that it was inhabited. It was going to be a struggle. It was going to be a fight. And that wasn't something he was quite as eager to get involved with. In hindsight, it's hard to understand why Abraham... Ham is asking this question because we have the benefit of the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament and we have this, um, you know, we come to problems like this with our own history and we forget that this is actually very early in mankind's dealings with God and, and, it's, and certainly on Abraham's behalf he didn't have a long history of experiential knowledge to understand more about the character of God so what he's asking here for is, God, where's the deed that shows that you have the authority to sign this land over to me? Where's the contract that I can carry around and show to the people that, have, that aren't going to be real pleased with me saying that this is now my land? Right? Abraham is asking to God to, to deal with him like in a, a business deal, as was the custom of that day. Thankfully, we don't do it this way today, but they used to slaughter an animal, put the pieces on the ground on either side, and the two people involved in the contract would walk between the animals, the symbolism being, let this be done to me and worse if I don't honor the terms of this contract. And that's what Abraham is asking God for. How am I going to know? Where's the contract? 
Little did he know that God would say, okay, I'll do that. And when the time came to walk between those halves of the animal, he puts Abraham to sleep. And God himself alone walks through those animals in the form of a smoking censure and seals the deal. The only one that is liable for that contract is God himself because that's his character. Abraham didn't know that. He had a wrong image of who God was. It was doubts coming from doubts of the mind and doubts of, of understanding who God was. It's very similar to what you might see today or what we did see in the Gospels with um, Jesus and, and the disciples. In Matthew, there's about six times when Jesus says, Oh, ye of little faith. And three of those times he follows it saying, Why did you doubt? Why are you doubting? The disciples, it took time to develop that understanding of who Jesus was. It took time for them to understand that though he called himself the Son of God, yes, he truly was able to save them, to rescue them, to feed them, to protect them, to provide in every aspect just as much as God the Father could. But eventually they got there. These are, this is a, a source of doubt that you might expect from young children or new believers without a background in, in a Bible knowledge. But it's certainly not what you'd expect in a mature believer. We should know these things. We should know what the scriptures say about our God and how he reacts to us and interacts with us. Another example comes in the book of Judges with, with Gideon. Um, the Lord says to Gideon, I will be with you and, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Now Gideon at this point did not have a very large army with him. And he says, um, if now I have found favor in your eyes, which is a very common phrase we find throughout the Old Testament, it kind of means, uh, excuse me, um, trying to be polite, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. If I'm going to go down there and face the Midianites, I want to make sure I'm hearing from God, not from a prankster in the back with a megaphone. Right? He, he, he's questioning, is this really from God? And the reason is that we're in the midst of a cycle that Israel was going through of, of um, great shame and apostasy, wicked kings that led the nation astray and worshiped the Baals and set up altars. And then a judge would come along and remind them of who God was, and there'd be some repentance and revival. And then another evil king would show up, and then another judge. But if, as you follow those stories throughout the book of Judges, the low times seem to be getting lower, and the up times seem to be getting a little less up. <laughs> um, and so what Gideon is dealing with is... Um, Doubt from not remembering. The history of how Yahweh has worked with his people has been lost. And the people haven't been reminded regularly of who God is and how much he loves his chosen people and what he's willing to do for them if they would just honor him and follow him. And so 
Gideon expresses some doubt because he's lost that. He hasn't remembered. And as a nation, they haven't remembered who God is. In Matthew 11, we have the story of, of John the Baptist in prison. And he hears about Jesus. Now, this is John, the... Um, who... who stood up to social norms, walked around in camel's fur and ate locusts. And he was a countercultural. He, he stood and he recognized Jesus from afar off. He baptized him in the Jordan. He was there when God spoke out of heaven. John was a powerful, aggressive, charismatic man, or so we thought, because here he sends, he's in prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask him a question. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Doesn't that sound like an expression of kind of doubt, kind of wonder, lostness? He's, lo he's, he's lost his, his light, his guiding focus. Because he's in prison. He's suffering from depression and stress and, and fatigue. This is a doubt of the heart. And Jesus responds gently. He builds John up, and I'm sure John's followers returned to him and recounted the things that Jesus said about him. Let me read it to you. Jesus was, because of this question, Jesus is prompted to say to the whole crowd there, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That was Jesus' response to John's doubt, doubts of the heart. Very similar to what we see in 1 Kings, the story of Elijah, who has just seen God defeat all the prophets of Baal in a fantastic amazing way, sending down fire to consume not just the sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the water and all the prophets of Baal. It was the high point of Elijah's career. And yet, immediately following that, Jezebel makes one idle threat and he takes off running. Why? This is showing great wishy-washiness and doubt in, in, in Elijah's life. Um, it says, in, um, as, immediately in that section, I forget what verse it is in Kings 19, an angel brought food and water to him. He lay down under a bush and fell asleep. Again an angel brought food and water to him, and again he lay down, and then he gets up and runs to Horeb, and when he gets there, he goes into a cave and spends the night. In the course of four verses, we have the angels feeding him and him sleeping at least three times. 
Elijah, after the great events, when, when God consumed that sacrifice and demonstrated his greatness, Elijah was exhausted. After that very high experience, he was beat. And in that sense of exhaustion, he was not responding with courage and confidence. And he ran. But God met him and took care of his needs, showing his compassionate and merciful approach to doubts of the heart. Similarly, we have Mary, who came to meet Jesus. As he approached, Lazarus has died. Mary goes out to meet him and says, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And we read that Jesus wept. He felt their hurt. He had compassion on all of those who were gathered with Mary. And he dealt kindly and gently with them because he understood that this was a hurt from a traumatic loss in her life, that she didn't know Lazarus was going to walk out of that tomb that same day. And Jesus deals gently with people in that condition, as he did with Thomas when he finally met Thomas. Thomas, who has the dubious distinction of being called the doubting Thomas. He wasn't there when Jesus first appeared before the disciples. And, and when he did in John chapter 20, he says to Thomas, Put your finger here in my hands. Reach your hand into the hole in my side and stop doubting. It's a direct command, but it's not done as condemnation. It's meant to ease his pain, his suffering, his doubts. Jesus deals very gently and kindly with these kind of doubts, and, and we should too. Don't be critical of people that you may know who are expressing doubts, particularly at a time of grief or loss or traumatic events in their lives. Encourage them with the promises of God in his mercy and grace. Don't condemn their doubts. The classic passage that leads to so much misuse or misunderstanding is James 1.5 which says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea and is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Ouch! Which one of us can say we've never prayed with doubts? Doesn't this seem to say that none of us can ever expect to receive anything from the Lord? I'm going to go outside of my notes for a minute because we've got plenty of time. Um... I believe I've come to a, an understanding of this passage which can be really, really helpful. And it came from looking at those original Greek meanings of the words. The word used here for doubting is diakrino, which is a compound word, which means two minds. 
So what Paul is essentially saying here is the one who doubts is a double-minded man. Well, thank you very much, Paul. That explains a lot. That's kind of like me saying to you that a horseshoe is a shoe for horses. See, the people who heard these words in their original already got that concept, the double-minded concept. So when I say to you that a horseshoe is like a shoe for horses, not very helpful, but if I continued that sentence and said, it's made of steel and protects the horse's hoof from splintering and, and you know, when riding on rough ground, you say, oh, that's helpful, thank you very much. The point is that the focus of that sentence is no longer, it's not a definition of horseshoe, it's an explanation and an application. So this sentence, this statement of Paul, that the man who asks with doubts is a double-minded man, it's not the double-minded man, which is an important part of that sentence. It's what follows. Unstable in all his ways. And it refers back to the purpose of this passage in James 1, which says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. But if you do it in a double-minded way, if you harbor doubts or myths or your own arrogant presumptions, if you avoid, if, if you cling to the comforts of, of being focused and dedicated in this area of belief, don't expect God to answer your questions in all the other areas of life because if you're double-minded in this, you will be double-minded in all of those areas also. Marriage, raising children, sexual identity, finances. Are you asking God for wisdom in any of those areas? Are you not committing to him in the area of faith? Are you not willing to be single-minded in your faith and yet expect God to answer your prayers in all those other areas? This is what Paul is condemning in this passage. Not the poor, broken, hurting person who has doubts because of their grief and rejection, but the arrogant person who thinks that God will answer their questions in every other area, even though they're not willing to pay the price. to be honest with God in their faith. There's a lot of other examples in Scripture, a lot of other cases. Some are hard to classify. Matthew. Um, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, he, Jesus causes a fig tree to wilt because it had no fruit on it. And the disciples say, whoa, how'd you do that? Show us how to do that. And he says... Um, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to this fig tree, but you also can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. When's the last time you successfully did that? No, that would be an extinction-level event. I can't do that. See, in, in my intellect, I, I figure out that ah, that would never, that doesn't make sense. No. What is Jesus saying there about doubt? It's a command to not doubt. 
which kind of implies that we have some choice in the matter. When Peter was walking on the water toward Jesus during the storm, and he got distracted by the wind and the waves, and he looked around, and he started to sink. Jesus reached out his hand and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus is both rescuing him, helping him, but also kind of confronting him by the fact that he doubted, that he took his eyes off Jesus. And then finally in Jude 20, which is another classic verse on doubt, always set up in con contradiction to the James verse, he's, Jesus, or in Jude, the writer says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Incidentally, it's the exact same word for doubt used in James. In this case, it's treat, to be treated mercifully. So the real question out of all of these examples, do we get any help from Paul in Philippians on how we deal with these doubts? And I believe we do. There's at least five important things that we learn from Paul I know this is very small text. It's the same verse we read as we, we stood together at the beginning of this message. And what I've done is highlight some of the important words. I'll quickly review what those indicate, and then I'll show you the list for people who like lists. What these will show us is that Paul was not lazy. He did not seek his own comfort. He looked forward, not behind. He had a goal, a heavenly goal. And he prized his heavenly calling above all else. Let's take a closer look. These are the words. He mentions goal a couple times. He says, I press on to take hold. I haven't arrived there yet. That shows great hope in the future. He strains toward what is ahead pressing on toward the goal and the prize for which God has called him heavenward. He was not lazy. He pressed on. He says it twice. Paul read constantly. He studied. He wrote letters even while in prison. He prayed. He preached. Paul was working out his salvation, not sitting on it. He wasn't seeking his own comfort. He strained for what was ahead. He endured hardship, loss, pain, discomfort, sweat and blood and tears without complaint because of the surpassing value that he placed on what he saw ahead of him. And he looked forward, not behind. He anticipated answers to his prayers. He anticipated provision for all his needs. He was certain that he would complete the race and reach the goal. And he had those goals, a heavenly goal. He was not satisfied with the things of this earth and the praise of men and the stuff that you could put in barns. And he prized his heavenly calling 
above all else, which was what? To know Christ. He had no greater affection, no higher reward, nothing that captured his imagination more, nothing compared to Christ in his mind. He was single-minded. But most importantly, Paul recognized that he could only take hold of Christ because Christ took hold of him. Christ was the initiator of the relationship. He wrote later in, in Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, this isn't all three verses, but it's interesting. It says, what? He's in response to criticism he's getting from others. We know him. Rather, we are known by him. He turns the whole equation around, and which is, mirrors Psalm 139. Beautifully, listen to Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. The psalmist knew that God knows us. Now, you're not going to get to know the Queen of England or President Trump simply because you want to. It's entirely up to them, and then only by special invitation, and then only if you respond to the invitation in the correct way. And it's somewhat true of our relationship with God as well. The difference is, it happened. It's real. It's not an unlikely fantasy. God has made himself known to us. He has sent an invitation, signed in his own blood, and it is only left for us to respond to that invitation. And it is in revealing ourselves to him and engaging in that relationship that we can know him in spirit and in truth. And the way this works, one of the ways that it works is to find yourself in the characters and circumstances and behaviors and mistakes of people in the scriptures. As you read, you will find yourself in there. And you realize that God knows you personally. He understands you. He forgives you. And that abolishes doubt. The opposite of doubt is trust. And trust is something that gets built up by spending time demonstrating faithfulness, gaining understanding between people, between us and God. And so you are invited and encouraged to open that envelope of doubt, no matter what it is, no matter what the question, 
God can handle your question, and he wants you to bring it to him. Ask Jesus to show you the holes in his hands, the hole in his side, so you understand the extent to which he is willing to meet you, to forgive you, to answer your questions. He says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. Jamie, you can advance that. <laughs> Let's pray, Almighty God. First of all, I pray for forgiveness because I and many of us here have entertained doubts willingly. And we have clung to our comfort zones instead of bringing our questions and concerns or being willing to pay the price that does have to be paid. Personally, the things we would have to give up to make a commitment to be where you want us to be to be honest with you, to be humble before you. And for those times when our doubts are assail us because of the trials, the traumas, the, the stress that we may endure, we praise you and thank you, God, for your gentleness and mercy. And pray that you meet us there on the road with those doubts. Show us your kindness and help us to lead others to that same gentle Christ who is willing and able to answer every question, to heal every wound, to put aside every doubt. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.